0: Almost two years ago, I gulped you down and took handfuls of pulls with you to try to finally escape. I chose you as my last taste, as my final escape. You, you were my confidence to try to control my final act, to bow out and leave what I didn't want to face. But it was meant to be. I tried to walk away holding your hand, but by some miracle, I stood up to face another day and once again, chose to have you by my side. Somehow I believed you made me feel more alive when I felt dead inside. I relied on you. I thought I loved you. I boasted how you were my longest relationship. You've been my life since I was a child and I've always struggled to go a week and sometimes a few hours without you. I wrote about you, encouraged people to taste you and held events where you were the hero. I let you be the hero instead of realizing I had to man up and choose to be my own
1: hero. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond.
2: Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we enable people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last five years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really, really hard to change your drinking alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. And each week we feature a community voice just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. Here's a lady from our Sober Spring WhatsApp group.
3: So a shout out to all joining Sober Springers. This is the best investment in yourself you will ever make. The tribe is unique. It's non-judgmental, always accessible, supportive, and super buzzing with tips, ideas, and also a secure space to just be as you journey. When I signed up, it was to give myself a window to recalibrate, or in fact, actually just to see if I could do that. My approach was uh, just for today. Each day, I just said just for today. And so actually the days add up. Unbelievably, to me, this September is two years for me. I still smile to myself every morning at the gift I have unwrapped for myself. It's really the ultimate liberation. It's something that I never anticipated. So welcome to the tribe and hang in for an incredible ride. You've so got this and we are all here together. Thank you.
2: So if you want to join our community and try the Sober Spring Challenge, just go to tribesober.com and check us out. So this week we're back to recovery stories and my guest this week is one of our tribe, Clive van der Begen. Now like many of us, Clive tried several times to get started on this journey, but once it actually clicked into place, there was no stopping him. And he's now powering up to his very first Soberversary. I began by asking Clive to introduce himself.
0: Um, My name is Clive van der Waachen and I live in Johannesburg in a little suburb called called Norwood, which is, uh, I love living here. I've lived here for about 12 years. Um, I'm married to um, a man named Frank, and he is incredibly supportive of me. And I, I couldn't be on this journey without him. And we have four little demanding dachshunds who keep us very busy um, and make me laugh every day. So I, I don't know what I'd be where I'd be without them. Um, and then in terms of work, I'm a business relationships training specialist and coach. So basically, I work with businesses in terms of improving relationships, um, customer experience, employee experience, and I coach people to be better in their relationships, but not in terms of marriage relationships or anything like that, but really in terms of their business relationships, how to get on better with their teams, how to get on better with their leaders or with their customers. Um, So that's been an interesting journey for me, how I got into that. And so I, I love doing it, and it's massively fulfilling.
2: Awesome, Clive. So I'll put your coaching credentials in the in the show notes if anyone would like to get in touch.
0: Fantastic.
2: So, so let's get delving into um the drinking story, shall we? We want all the gory details out of
0: you, please. <laughs> how how old details. were you?
2: How <laughs> old were you when you started drinking? Because I have a memory of you telling me that your was it your dad uh, or someone in your family almost encouraged you to have a a sip of wine now and again so that you wouldn't do
0: it in secret. Is that correct? That is correct. So we always had alcohol around the house. It was quite normal. And um, my dad and um, my stepmother, he remarried, um, enjoyed sweet wine and beer. And so what they would do is often um, they would – they would, there was often a, a wine called Hanapuert around, um, which was is sickly sweet, but, you know, for a child, is massively delicious. And I would always be allowed to, from a young age, from as old as I can remember, from eight, nine years old, my dad would, you know, let me have a sip of it and taste it. And I kind of grew up around wine. I was never a beer drinker. Um, and – I remember he as I got into my kind of standard 5 which is grade 7 um 12 year old 13 year old my dad we'd go out for dinner and my dad would pour us a glass of wine and he'd always say that he wanted to teach us to drink wine but because it's acquired um, and that we would uh, I remember it was be- Bellingham Johannesburger that we'd always drink I still remember it vividly and we would uh, we because he, he said he wanted us to learn to drink with him and not behind his back and to be able to learn to drink moderately and this was his way of kind of teaching us to to drink appropriately um, and and to do this from a young age so I, I don't have any anger with him about that I think he was you know, I think he he grew up with an alcoholic father, so I think he was very much trying to teach us a very different view of alcohol. Um, but it was you know part of our lives, but not in an alcoholic or alcoholism kind of way. Just really, we were encouraged to drink because it was the norm, really. So yeah. Sure.
2: But but, Clive, if you were a parent, would that be your policy? What do you think of that policy now? You've got so much hindsight.
0: Uh do you know I, I I don't want to blame him I think he did the best that he could but no, of um, course. I I think that it 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 was it's it's naive uh I think at the moment if I had to have children I would warn them of the dangers of alcoholism um and I think I've never been one to be put off alcohol because it's a poison. So um, because I think people smoke, you know, even though they know it's doing them damage, it almost doesn't scare people off. But I think what I would rather do was just uh, if I was parenting now, um, I wouldn't encourage – Obviously, someone young to drink, but uh, I, I also wouldn't encourage someone not to drink. I'm not, I'm not vehemently opposed to people drinking. Uh, there's some. My, my husband can moderate and have a glass of wine or two beers, and he's fine. Um, but I am aware that I have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol, and I'd be upfront about that, and let that be. A, a narrative that they understand that it can be something that could be a part of their lives in an unhealthy way but i don't think i, I think if you make alcohol the demon it becomes almost especially for children something they want to try so it, you know it. i think i think my dad did the other extreme you know and made it something yeah. that was you know part of our lives but i i think it was yeah I, I wouldn't i wouldn't go in there and 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 encourage my children to drink but i, I wouldn't necessarily discourage them
1: you're listening to a podcast from tribe sober
2: yeah it's it's quite a balancing act isn't it i mean if i could uh, go through that early parenting phase again i think i would probably um emphasize the dangers and try and educate. But uh, in fact, when I think of my son, I kind of role modeled for him the damage that alcohol can does. And interestingly, he doesn't touch it. He's not
0: interested. Oh, really? But that's yeah. interesting you say that because there's so many people I know who are children of alcoholic um, parents. Yet, and, and there is all the research going on that is a genetic, etc., cetera, hereditary, um, but... I know many people either have uh, a response where they don't drink. So my brother doesn't drink based on. So um, my one of my family members is became alcoholic after, you know, when I was kind of Late teenage years, Um, and because of that, he's very opposed to drinking. Whereas for me, it wasn't a deterrent. Um, It wasn't. I wasn't modelled. You know. In fact, you know, it was something I just ignored. It was her problem, and um, something that wouldn't happen to me. So, it's interesting that you know. So I think we all respond differently to you know. And also, my dad, his his father actually died of alcoholism. It eventually his cirrhosis of the liver, and he was drank one night and found, was found dead in the streets. And oh. my father's relationship with alcohol, you know, has never been, I have a similar relationship with him to where my dad starts drinking and he can't stop. Um, so he's also stopped drinking now. But, you know, when we were younger, it wasn't the case of alcohol was there was anything wrong with it. He hit the role model for him didn't deter him from alcoholism. Yeah. He just saw his dad as having a problem. But that you know, it's almost in our twenties and thirties. We almost feel like we're invincible to yeah. um, what what alcohol could potentially do to us, and it's not going to happen to us. And I think we get surprised, especially as we grow older, when we suddenly realize we've become exactly what we didn't want to be, or we're heading there. Um, yeah. And so, I know that's what happened to me.
2: Yeah, yeah, me too. I was uh, 20s and 30s drinking to socialize and then 40s and 50s it evolved into a different kind of story. Mm. And I only realized that I had a problem when I tried to cut down and I couldn't. I thought, wow.
0: Exactly. So w-
2: what age were you when you started to, to worry a little bit about it?
0: So I think... I think I started to worry a little bit, actually, when I was in my 20s, uh, probably early 30s, because I would, and it was still in the days when we used to drink and drive, because there there were no Ubers and things like that. And I remember I used to to drive, and sometimes I'd end up falling asleep and kind of hit gravel. I never had an accident or anything like that. And I started thinking that, you know, and so I'd go out, but it was my social lubricant. Uh, Alcohol was such a part of My social life and my friend's social life. Uh, In university, it was, you know, I went to drama school and it was very much a case of we all, you know, it was every Friday we partied, you know, um, after the shows that we were putting on. So I kind of started realizing then that maybe, you know, I needed to stop the drinking and driving you know and start and also I remember feeling terrible and feeling like I wasn't doing my body good um it's, I regretted the the hangovers but it was only a weekend kind of drinking so I thought it was fine um, but I was drinking every weekend um when in, in my twenties pretty much and clubbing and I was I was a very good teenager very well behaved and I found my rebellious streak in my twenties <laughs> so and I really I enjoyed my twenties a lot. Um, And then, so when I got into my 30s, drinking was actually, um, I didn't think it was a problem because it was then that I got involved in the Wine of the Month Club. I edited their magazine called Good Taste, and I started um, learning about wine and judging wine, and uh, I was part of... um, Tastings the, the whole time and got more and more into magazine editing. And eventually I studied wine through the Cape Wine Academy. And I have my international diploma. I've got my South African wine diploma. I was a writer for Food and Home magazine about wine. I had a wine blog. I was having wine delivered to me free of charge from all of these wine estates. It was so wine was a part of was never a problem because it was a part of my career. I held I had a wine club where I held wine tasting events and would get the various wine estates to start to to come along. Um. And I, I felt like I, wine was, you know, people used to say to me, it's how classy people get trashed. And I would laugh and laugh and laugh at that. Um, but it was, you know, I was basically, it was a part of my life now. And I, every night I was opening up a bottle of wine, but it was it was a bottle of wine to taste because I had to write about it. You know, I, I would have a flight of wines, as I'd call it, you know, which would have had open up six bottles of wine. And I'd have it do a tasting session all by myself. Um so I was quite ignorant in terms of what I was doing, and I, I kind of, when I think back now, I was definitely using wine to zone out, but I do love the craft of wine. I do I do love, you know, the art of wine, so I, I will never say to someone, don't go to the winelands and experience it if they could moderate But I then started realizing when I was working in magazines and I went to um, a conference and I got very drunk at the conference and I was the life and soul of the party. And then one of the salespeople, I overheard them about two or three weeks later talking to someone else and saying, oh, does Clive drink? And he went, my God, Clive drinks like a fish. And I remember at that point thinking, do I? Is this how people perceive me? But I, I kind of thought, well, maybe maybe it's it's not really a problem, but maybe it's just that I should maybe moderate a little bit more and, and kind of not get because when I did drink I got drunk. Um, And I think that was the thing, you know, and visibly, so Friday afternoon drinks with the salespeople, I'd get hammered, you know, and drive home hammered, you know, and, and, uh, and, and I think that was when I started realizing that I needed to change my relationship with alcohol. And in 2016, I started a new job. I left magazines and went into work for an employment experience agency. And on the 1st of January, I decided I was going to stop drinking and it was almost a new year's resolution. um, And I was going to change my relationship with alcohol and, I remember being fine with stopping drinking at that point. I remember getting the odd craving and realizing that I was using alcohol more to zone out than I was to actually, I don't think it was some kind of escape from anxiety. I just enjoyed the zoning out kind of feeling after a day of work. And so psychologically, when I wanted to zone out, that was when I craved alcohol. But after a couple of weeks, months, it got better and better until eventually in the the November, I decided that, oh, I'm sure I can start moderating again. It'll be absolutely fine. So after about 11 months of being completely sober and feeling fantastic being sober, I thought, you know, because I didn't see it as a problem, I'd just go back to drinking on the weekends as it went. Cut to me uh, realizing once, and I think that was my realization that I I couldn't moderate, and that's when I realized I really did have a problem. When you know, by the end of 2016, again, I was drinking a bottle of wine a night, and it was just getting, and was getting to the point where I was starting to feel embarrassed about how much I was drinking. So I'd fill up the bottle, the red wine bottle, with with water, so it looked like it was still you know at least three quarters full instead of actually that I'd finished the whole thing. Um, And that was when in 2016 or 2017, I started realizing that I had a problem and would try and stop or try and do the weekend thing. But I just carried on. I don't know why I carried on, but that was when I realized that my relationship with alcohol was not healthy and that, and I didn't really know where to start, even though I had stopped drinking before, but I didn't really know what to do because that's the whole thing is that although I felt I had a problem with alcohol I didn't feel like an alcoholic because I knew what alcoholism looked like and I wasn't waking up in the middle Mm -hmm. of the night to have a drink I wasn't waking up in the morning to have a drink um I was just worried that I reeked of alcohol in the morning, you know, that that was my worry. But it was only an evening thing. I felt like a social smoker, you know, which means that you don't really yeah. smoke. It just, where social smoking just means you smoke other people's cigarettes. Um, so I so I, I saw it as a problem, but not to the severity of what society defines it to be a problem. Mm. Um, yeah, But I was aware of
2: of course society defines alcoholism as the homeless man on the bench. Exactly. Clutching
0: his bottle of scotch and that wasn't you. Exactly. And and my grandfather had died of alcoholism. So it was, Mm. you know, I, I understood it to be severe, you know. And then uh, and I wasn't that guy. In fact, I, it, no. uh, later on, it kind of towards before I stopped drinking, I went to AA and walked out and had a glass of wine to celebrate the fact that I wasn't an alcoholic. Yeah, because I yeah. wasn't in rehab like them. I hadn't lost my Psych. family. I hadn't written off cars. So AA, you know, was was almost a, a bad example. And I'm not knocking AA. I think it has its place. Mm. and has worked for many of my friends. But for me, it was a place where I felt almost it affirmed the fact that I didn't have a problem as opposed to it yeah, yeah. You know, made me feel relieved. So I went home and had a glass of wine to celebrate yeah. my the fact that I, was I
2: exactly the thing. Yeah, look at these
0: people. Yes. No, they were all chain smoking outside and talking <laughs> about yeah, their rock bottoms know. and I was not chain smoking. I didn't smoke. And you know I was I, I, I was fine. I didn't drink at work and slip a hip flask and I was fine.
2: Let's just go back to your moderation experiment sure. for a minute, because that's so interesting. So you had uh, you started drinking again after eleven months, and really by two months you were back to, yeah. to previous levels, weren't you? Well, I would some, actually some say in the people...
0: December because obviously December holidays, you yeah, know, I course. started, you know, but I, I wrote it off to being December holidays. But by the January, I was back <laughs> to normal, back to the way I was.
1: I should say. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com.
2: A lady uh, I interviewed recently who's like a brain specialist uh, told me something very interesting about this she said that if we have been drinking for decades, you know, and we have got a dependence issue, if we develop one, then we, we've got a neural pathway in our brain, a drinking pathway, if you want to call it that, that is so deep, you know, it's almost like a super highway. And then we try and change our behavior and we try and develop, you know, a non-drinking highway. But that superhighway will always be there. Mm-hmm. And she said a good way to think about it is think of it as your your mother tongue language. And imagine if you moved to Italy and you spoke Italian all day, your English would still be there and you'd always you could just switch over and speak English beautifully. And I thought that was a very good analogy, actually. So we have to think it's always there, and once we've crossed a line with our drinking, we can't really go back and moderate. Yeah, and it's uh, it's sad but true.
0: Yeah, and there's and, and the the fact is is that there are some people who can moderate, and I respect yes, that. Totally. And uh, I you know I've, I've never been a vehement and won't become a vehement anti-alcohol um, person, but it it's. It, it, it is my problem is, is that once I start, I can't stop and I have to, and there's certain people that, and being a part of Tribe Sober, I've realized that, you know, I'm not the only one, you know, there, there are many of us who that's just our relationship with alcohol and something that I have to accept. Um, but yeah, it is. The, that's, the, that's
2: the joy of. Sorry, that's the joy of um, joining a community, isn't it? Because you, you're with other people that get you. You know, they're not going to say to you, "Oh, just have one glass
0: of wine and you'll be fine." Yes, <laughs> they understand this, and it's almost, you know, the- to some extent. Uh, and and you're you're very patient on the tribe server groups, and I love the community. But there are those people who kind of join and say that they. They want to to moderate, and I kind of all, almost think that you know that they want to get there. And I almost think that you know if you're joining something like Tribe Sober, I almost want to say don't do, don't go back to moderating. I know if you've if you've got to the point where you think you need to join something to help you not drink, moderation is no longer an option because no, absolutely, you know it you either moderate or you don't. And someone who exactly. has got to a point of have feeling like they've got a problem will always go back there. I've never seen someone successfully moderate. They might initially, but it will always mm. eventually go back to – and I could be wrong, but it's in my experience. I've never seen anyone who hasn't come crawling back to say, <laughs> I thought I could moderate, yeah. but it's not possible. So I've realized yeah, but that. But
2: sometimes – people have to go through that phase. You know, we we call our workshop How to Moderate or Quit. Yeah. And not that we're trying to trick anyone. It's not a marketing thing, but... We want to get people there that are in this kind of moderation trap, you know, and they might well say, I've come here to learn how to moderate, and you can apply the tools that we share to moderation. But very often, you know, they'll go away and they'll try for a year, and then they'll come back to another workshop and they'll say, You were right, I can't moderate, but I had to keep experimenting. And it's almost part of the contemplation phase, because until you accept, I can't moderate, it's, it's not going to work, and then once you accept it. But the moderation thing is so tricky because I don't know if you heard that interview that I did with William Porter a, a few weeks did, ago. The author of he talked-
0: explained, yes.
2: Yeah, did you hear fading effect bias? I thought that was so interesting. Yes, our brains trick us, and they they remind us of the good times we had with alcohol, and we forget, you know, the hangovers and the blackouts and the driving drunk, etc. And we think, oh, I miss those good times, and I've been sober for a year. I've proved to everybody that I'm not an alcoholic, so now I'm going to moderate. Yes, absolutely. And then it, oh, but it, and and it's there. interesting
0: you say that because yesterday. Um, we were driving out to Mulder's Drift and to go and have lunch at a restaurant and go and sit outside. And I said to, to my husband on the way there, I just said, and it, it's because I have I've been sober now for at the time of recording almost 11 months. And I, I said to him, I said, today I'm slightly triggered. Because it's rose day for me, because the weather was beautiful. We were going to go and sit out in the garden. And it's almost like I've, in this neural programming, that summer, summery weather was rose weather for me. So, and I said to him, I said, I need to, I, I'm just acknowledging that I'm triggered. I wasn't going to drink, I wasn't craving, but it was almost like this, you know, whereas it was this romanticized view of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah normally what I would do is I would be the person who, even if I'd driven there, I'd be driven back home. I'd make everyone else drink so that everyone was slammed at the table because it made me feel better. I would, I would, you know, sh- I would scoff at the people who said they weren't drinking because, you know, they actually made me feel bad, even though, um, you know, the fact is that I, you know, I'd be like, oh, you're so boring and carry on. And I'd be the one, and I'd get home and open up another bottle, you know, on a Sunday night and Monday Start off game, but yet still, yesterday after eleven months, I was still driving to this restaurant thinking it would be such a perfect day to have a glass of rosé, and I had to literally say to myself, "You're being triggered. It's not. It's not that nice an experience." Yeah. And you know, I know USA played the movie forward, and it's it is. You know, I kind of in my mind had to say because tomorrow you'll have to reset to day 1 <laughs> you'll have to remove yourself okay. from the 6 month group which would be devastating for me <laughs> i was very proud when i joined the big people's group um but uh, you know and and also it, it it would just be it would be going backwards to a place where i i was miserably un- unhappy even though i thought alcohol was making me happy if that makes sense yeah
2: and we have to, to steal an expression from Gwyneth Paltrow, we have to uncouple rosé with sunshine. Exactly. <laughs> and you'll only do that in your brain by going out and enjoying some alcohol-free bubbly or something uh, in the sunshine for a few times. And then you'll think, oh, okay, I can do this. Uh, with Your subconscious will accept that it doesn't have
0: to be rosé if yeah. the sun is shining. Well, I'm yeah. not sure if... So I'm not sure if, it, and and you would know because you've been sober for longer, but I've almost forgiven myself for having that kind of programming because it almost keeps me on my toes to some extent. I don't want to be a smug, you know, and eventually, well, you know, one day kind of relapse. I want to be very aware of the fact that I have a a drinking problem. And so what I do is I, I don't mind kind of being triggered, um, because I don't necessarily get cravings and I don't feel the need to reprogram that. I just feel the need to acknowledge that that's, yeah. that that's a part of my programming now. So when I do go out, I just, and I watch everyone else getting absolutely slammed, you know, cause I, I do have a group of friends who do enjoy drinking, um, and, Almost, where uh, what I do is just actually enjoy the company, and then eventually feel grateful when I watch them get louder, and you know, uh, and and start, you know, kind of encouraging me to drink and doing all that. I just become very pleased that I'm not there once again. But yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. If, I'm not. And that's the thing is after 11 months, I would have thought that those triggers would have gone away, but I'm going to forgive myself if those triggers. And I remember people saying that 13 years on one of our clubhouse talks Mm. and she still gets those triggers or moments where it's like a drink would be nice. And I think we have to realize that we don't ever get to a point of not having to work at this. Um, because it has been so programmed and I almost want to forgive myself for that. It doesn't mean that I'm weak. Um, I don't know if that makes
2: sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. And let's be curious about what's, what's going on here. The way you analyzed it, it was always rosé sunshine was great. And I would say, be a scientist in your own life, you know, and see what's going on up here. Yeah. And also, when you're with friends, I mean be an
0: anthropologist. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you're
2: David Attenborough.
0: Yeah. <laughs> seeing how them. they and and it is amazing watching them shift in behavior. And I don't, I I, I have no problem with it. We went out because it was a long weekend this weekend, and we went out on Saturday, and you know, they we were with friends who had all been drinking, and you know, my husband was drinking, and then. um but nothing hectic. And then what happened was you could see they settled down and it was beautiful weather. And we were also once again sitting outside and then we're like, sure, shall we get a bottle of wine? You know, and so, and, you, and I could see that we heading to the point of this was going to be an afternoon of tucking in. And that was when that, at that point I said to my, to my husband, I said, no, we're going now because I knew that that wasn't going to be something I'd be able to tolerate watching or being a part of. And also I would just grow very bored. So, and he's very supportive of that luckily, but if I'd known it was going to head that way, I probably wouldn't have gone um, because I don't like watching people, you know, and, and spending an afternoon watching people drink, but it is what it is, and 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 I did know that that was going to make me and possibly tempt me as well, because you know you are sitting out in the sun. I do have these triggers, so I just rather avoided the situation altogether.
2: Yeah, and I, I'm sure your friends weren't annoyed that you drifted off. You know, well, they actually yeah. ended up cancelling
0: it, cancelling the the idea. Oh, uh, they did. They said that they didn't, and you know, we went off and, and we all, you know, we had a. a cappuccino and then went home after that so and they are for nice. sure they they even encouraged us to come to their house to drink wine and i said no you know i've got to i yeah. just said no i i feel no qualms i don't feel the need to make any excuses about the fact that i don't want no, to no. so i just said no i want to go home so i said it's nap awesome. time so, well done <laughs> yeah but i knew that it was going to be something that i wouldn't enjoy and i don't think i would have drunk but it could potentially be a trigger is watching because uh, out of boredom, um, most more than anything else. And I know when I get bored, I want to drink.
1: You're listening to a podcast from tribe sober.
2: (laughs) So Clive, I think the time has come to hear the Madonna story. (laughs) You know, it's one of my favorites and we have to share it with the listeners.
0: Okay. So it's one of the, it, it it's, It's one of the reasons I I kind of realized I needed to stop drinking, um, but I didn't stop drinking after it. And actually there were two instances, more than just Madonna. But um, I I went – so there were two things I wanted to do when on a recent trip to London. Obviously it was just before COVID. It was February last year. And Madonna had decided that she was going to – and Madonna, I've been – a huge fan of since my teenage years, since like a virgin, I it was she's been a part of my life and I've got every album and I followed it. I used to cut pictures out of magazines. I mean, she is every. I was obsessed, still am obsessed. Um, and so Madonna announced that she was going to be doing her Madam X concert, which was going to be done in theaters, um, and it was going to be and in London she was performing at the Royal Albert, and I'd always wanted to see something at the Royal Albert. And I'd always wanted to see Madonna. So I thought, well, we're going off to London um, and we're going to go and and, and see Madonna. So I booked tickets. I paid a fortune for these tickets and um, obviously flights to get there and Madonna. And also I decided I was going to book to see Wicked because I'd also, Wicked was up there on my bucket list of things to see. And in both experiences, the same thing happened, um, except for Wicked, I just got totally slammed beforehand on the way there after a lunch, and I don't remember much of Wicked. But in terms of Madonna, I arrived, and Madonna is notoriously late um, for her shows. So we all had to stand outside, and they also they take away, she took away our cell phones. So we had literally not, no, no kind of, you know, distraction except to kind of stand there and talk to each other which was my my husband and i and so he eventually said well would you like a glass of wine and this was about 7 p.m she was meant to start at eight o'clock by nine o'clock i'd probably had about four glasses of wine but they were served in those typical concert glasses where it's these plastic buckets of wine which they fill to the brim and i was having a fabulous time. And I I went in on top of the world. They ended up moving us. I was sitting in the very back row because it was all I could afford. And they ended up the promoter came and said, would you like to move forward? And I was like, of course I'd like to move forward. So we went running off. We had the most fantastic seats a lady next, I tell her you, you could take your wine in with you. A lady next to me, I brought in a new glass of wine. lady next to me, I started talking to her as if she was my new best friend because, of course, I was, you know, could talk to anyone at that point. Madonna came on stage about half past nine, quarter to ten, um, and, and started off her concert. I remember her starting off with Vogue. And then I remember enjoying the show. I remember snippets, but the next morning, and to this point now, I have no recollection of the show. I can't tell you what she sang, what what songs. I I remember standing up to like a prayer because that's I have this like momentary, and I'm very excited because she's going to release the DVD soon, so I'll be able to see what I missed out on. But I have no recollection of this concert, which was hugely on my bucket list. I eventually had to ask Frank the next morning, and I said to him. Did she sing? This was it good? And he was like, "It was a fantastic show." Um, she was limping around the stage, apparently because she had a knee injury. I have no recollection of that. I and and I I was robbed because of alcohol because I got so I got so drunk beforehand. Thought I had a fantastic time. Saved up, spent thousands, and I have no recollection of the concert. <laughs>
2: Wow, what a story! Yeah, I've ha- had a few moments like that, a few evenings like that. Not not quite as as memorable as as a concert like that. But I I think people like us we we get overexcited, don't we? We think, oh, you know, yeah, we're gonna and have wine
0: such was part of the celebration. Time. You know, I was exactly. celebrating being at Madonna with glasses of wine and having a fantastic time. I thought, not realizing okay. actually that. That actually, I you know, I'd wake up the next morning and not remember anything. It was all part of the celebration of being there. What's the way
2: that the way that we think that alcohol is gonna. Enhance our experiences. So I have a lot of people saying to me, you know, they come on the workshops. So they know they've got to give up, but they've no idea how they're going to do it. And they say things like, "How on earth will I ever enjoy a sunset again without my glass of wine?" It, <laughs> and I know where they're coming from because I was like that too. Yes. But it is possible. The sun will still set even
0: if you stop drinking. Well, absolutely, enough. and that's and, and that that is and it is about the the. The, the fact is that we do equate good time with, with alcohol. And it's actually come to a point now when I have seen people, which hasn't been often, um, but it, it, when when kind of COVID died down and we were allowed to have people around, we had people around for a break and they actually were surprised. They didn't know that I hadn't been drinking because I'd just been drinking alcohol-free drinks the whole night. Um, and um, they didn't know that I hadn't been drinking and they were surprised to hear that I'd stopped drinking because I didn't say anything. But because I was still on top form, and I always used to think that being on top form, as my friends used to call me, because I was always the life and soul of the party. I'm massively extroverted. I love people, and I love interacting with people and having people around and entertaining. They all thought that I was as drunk as they were, just by the very nature of the fact that I was taking part. And that was when I realized that I didn't need alcohol to be a social lubricant anymore. When I, re- I realized that that I could that I could actually that that my personality wasn't defined by alcohol, um, by the very nature of the fact that I was still the same Clive without alcohol. I just decided to enjoy the moment. I do find I get more tired quicker now than, you know, when people are drinking and I'm not, that's the only thing I'm aware of. So um, I'll drink coffee or something to kind of keep, you know, to keep entertaining them. But I have realized that I don't, that Clive doesn't rely on alcohol to be Clive in social moments. Yeah.
2: That's, that's wonderful. It means your subconscious has accepted that. Yes, I can be me without yeah. pouring this. Fruit Doesn't mean I'm down. not triggered and to the, possibly
0: have a glass, you know. So sure, I still have a sure. art would be so nice. But I know that I can't.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So here you are, 11 months in looking fabulous. Thank you. Let's Let's hear about the benefits, Clive. If anyone's listening to this and they're thinking, oh, I know I should do this, and but oh, what's the point? And will I ever be happy again? You know, people thinking that kind of thing. What would you say to them? What, what benefits have you experienced?
0: So I've, there have been a couple of benefits. Um, and at first, they didn't feel like there were benefits. That's that. That's the first thing I want to kind of say to people. You know, the first few days, the felt awful. The the amount of day ones that I had because you do feel like there is, and it, it's a it is because your body has become so programmed and addicted, even though it's a mild addiction. But um, eleven months in, I think the biggest benefit that I I have seen is my realization. That I can be disciplined, so that's that's been quite quite good for me because I felt so undisciplined drinking, um, because it was it it controlled so much. So the next morning I would feel terrible, and I felt like I couldn't, I wasn't in control. And not being in control, as a coach, Janet, you would know this as well. Not being in control creates anxiety, and my relationship with alcohol was one where I couldn't control. I couldn't control it. So what that means is that by stopping alcohol, I've almost regained control. And with the regaining of control, I've released the anxiety that I thought alcohol was easing, but I've now realized was causing. and that that discipline of not of saying no, of, Being of choosing to come home and and, although I'm working from home, but finishing off a day and normally my programming was, you know, let's zone out and, you know, with a bottle of wine. So what's happened now is that discipline of saying no to that has actually almost made me regain control of other aspects of my life which has been incredibly powerful. So it has made me realize, so it's, and a lot of people talk about their exercise when they start stop drinking alcohol. But it's not just been that, it's almost just been a psychological kind of sense of actually I'm not weak. And it's been so affirming when because alcohol made me feel so weak, especially when I was going through the day ones. Um, i used to beat myself up and i i told you about it you know i used to beat myself up so much about the fact that i wasn't in control and now that i have managed to get control i feel i feel stronger more disciplined and i feel like i can actually achieve certain things that 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 i weren't in my realm of being able to achieve you know beforehand or, 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 But it's not even as as profound as that. It's just the fact is, is that I have realized that I'm a person who is disciplined, who is in control, and I can regain control of my life even in those moments when I might feel out of control rather than resorting to alcohol, which I thought was easing the out-of-controlness. So that's been the first benefit that I have. Is, so the reduction yeah, in anxiety... That's...
1: You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober.
2: Can I just comment on on that, Clive? uh, Because, yeah, that's so interesting about the, the disciplined bit. Because I often say to people, sobriety is a superpower. Because almost subconsciously, you think to yourself, if I can... Ditch the drink, I can do anything, you know, because it was so entrenched in my life. If I can get rid of that, I can do anything. And you hear about, and indeed I've done it myself, you hear about people then looking at other aspects of their life and thinking, okay, you know, because you get this energy, creativity, and you get clarity of thought. And you think, okay, you know, I need to stop eating junk, you know, I need to exercise more, I need to do something about my career, my relationships. has such an amazing knock on effect mm. because I don't think we realize how alcohol kind of dampens us down you know it saps the motivation and we we forget, you know, how how many things we could we could change in our lives. And once we've got this power, then uh, we can go ahead and do it. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for that. That was a, a lovely benefit.
0: Yeah, well, I, I'm very I'm very proud of, and I've said this before when I, I did my share in the tribes herb community. I, I'm very proud of being alcohol free. It is something that I and when people speak to me, I I have no. I have, I'm I'm not ashamed of the fact that I'm alcohol-free and that's, uh, it, it. it is, it does feel like something to be proud of and celebrated and that's why I celebrate the milestones um, because it is something that has freed me so much and made me feel so much more different about myself. Um, I did feel so weak and I thought that I was weak because of me and the alcohol was making me feel better socially, a work-wise, work functions. I take clients out for dinner and you know, be the life of the party. They'd book more sales with us, and I thought it was all booze. Now I'm making sales without booze. It's <laughs> and it's still the same, Clive. It is. It's it, you know, that I kind of realised that I can I can be me, and it's almost a sense of pride in being me as opposed to being yeah. what I thought was me being reliant on something else.
2: Yeah, I love that pride thing because I uh, I was the same in my early sobriety. I felt apologetic, embarrassed, you know, and, and now I can't wait to tell people. I can't wait for them to offer me a drink so I can say, oh, I don't drink
0: actually. Yeah, well, I, and and I, I say to people, and it, it's one of the things that puts people in their place completely is is that you, you say, someone said, oh, would you like a glass of wine? And I say no. And they're like, oh, don't you drink? And Because immediately that's what people do is they ask you why you don't drink or, you you know, why you're not having a drink. And, you know, I could lie and say it's because I'm driving, you know, even though you know, if, if I'm not driving or I'm on antibiotics. And I kind of thought, and I used to do that when I was first sober in 2016. I'd always say it was because I was an antidepressants or something like that. Um, and I just now say to people, I say, you know, because I've, I've got a drinking problem. And I remember one friend who I used to drink a lot with and I hadn't seen him for a while. And he said to me, he said, oh, you could have warned me, you know, not to ask the question. So, and I was like, well, why did you ask anyway? And <laughs> exactly. he, he said, he said, oh, because, I, you know, I, I was just curious. And I said, well, I'm being honest with you. I've got a problem. So, he said, oh, yeah. okay, well, yeah. good for you for realizing it and never offered me a drink for the rest of the night. It just... He, it was awkward for a moment, but we carried on with it. <laughs> so
2: Exactly. And um, we get more and more at ease, don't we, explaining as the as the years go by. So let's um before you read your, your beautiful letter, give us a few tips for people that are listening, because you you haven't really said how you managed it and how it stuck. You mentioned all the day ones, but why was it different this time? Why did it stick?
0: So I think it stuck this time because it got to a point where it was. Um, so it, it's interesting. My, my Frank had said to me that he didn't understand my relationship with alcohol because he could moderate. So he kept saying that I had almost created this belief that i couldn't stop drinking and he almost felt that it was my script that i had written for myself and i just needed to change my script and be able to moderate and that was just his – it wasn't meant from a, a place of of being horrible or anything. It was just he didn't understand alcoholism. He's never grown up in an alcoholic family. He's never understood alcoholism moderation for him is perfectly normal. Um, so he felt that I just needed to change the script. And so I – I, I, and and I just I said to him I said no I've got a problem and he never ever really acknowledged that or, or understood it and then one night um, and I suppose this would be my kind of rock bottom I ended up getting getting slammed um, and falling against the the cupboard doors um, and he was he was like why are you. Um, why you, you you like you know drinking like this and I, and I just said to him I said no it's because I I took it with with anti anxiety pills meanwhile I was slammed um, and then what happened was I got hold of my cell phone and started messy because it was close to my birthday. It was nine days away from my birthday in the middle of COVID. And started telling people that I was having a dinner party. And in, I kept adding new people onto the group. I had started a WhatsApp group. I don't re- recall doing this and inviting them around to having a breakfast, you know, dinner at my house. And everyone's going to bring wine. And then I would add more people to the group. And I would repeat the message. And eventually I'd sent out about... 17 messages to all these 30 people. Some of them I hardly even knew. And he came in and he took my phone away. And he said to me, he said, this is unacceptable. Because people were starting to respond and saying, sure, someone's having a good night. You know, because I was clearly drunk and couldn't spell. And when I woke up the next morning feeling terrible, he had gone to the fridge and he had poured every single bottle of wine that we had had. And, you know, we had kind of stocked up for lockdown down the drain. And he said, I get it. I understand it stops now. And it was when he got involved and I kind of saw and when he said to me, it was no, no longer acceptable. That was when it almost gave me the realization that that other, I was embarrassing myself, that I was really not and, – and I did, I feel embarrassed about that night and still some people I haven't spoken to again. But um, it it was – and it haunts me is, is that when he told me what I was doing and I kind of realized that I couldn't carry on like this and I'd had so many day ones and kept going back and you know relying on alcohol. So it was the fact that he stood up to me and he said it's unacceptable now. So I, that's why I think it's so important to, to have people in your life who support you in your sobriety yeah. um, and the fact that there was no alcohol in the house from then on. So I think that that yeah. was that was also you know a big game changer, and I avoided going to the shop, so I wouldn't drive to Woolies because that meant you know I could pick up a bottle of wine because alcohol was allowed back. Um, but I I I I for the first week or so I just stayed in the house and I avoided all what would be my normal triggers, and I. I sat licking my wounds and feeling very embarrassed for my behavior. So not really a rock bottom where I kind of lost anything severely, but I think it was at that point I had a mirror held up to me, which showed me just how I was actually behaving and how embarrassing it was for a man of my age, for, for anyone of my age, and almost becoming quite puerile and childlike and, losing control the way that i did and i decided at that point i had to regain control um yeah so so
2: not so much as a rock bottom as a a turning point a turning point for your entire life yeah
0: you know it was it it was i think when i realized how much i was embarrassing him because he felt embarrassed by my behavior yeah um and i think once i realized how much i was embarrassing other people because I think I was okay with being embar- embarrassing myself, you know. And also, often people tell you how, you know, you know, you fall through tables and they were like, ah, ha, ha, you were so drunk, just own it, you know, kind of thing. Um, but this was the first time where he said to me, you're an embarrassment. Not using those words, but I felt yeah. hugely embarrassed for my behavior. And that was the turning oh, well, point where I kind of realized. Well, well done,
2: you and... Uh... You're really on track now for a kind of different trajectory. Well, yeah,
0: I mean, it's nearly a year. (sniffs) It's amazing. We
2: we could talk all day, and I'm really tempted to go on and on, but I've got got a coaching appointment. So um, let's... End this conversation, please, Clive, by hearing your your beautiful goodbye to alcohol letter. For anyone listening to this who doesn't know what I'm on about, we, we recommend uh, in our workshops that people write a goodbye to alcohol letter. And the rationale behind this is that alcohol can be like an abusive lover. You know, it's in your life, it's out of your life. You try and keep away from it, but it comes creeping back because you start remembering the good times. And it's, it's very much like that. So I know when I wrote my letter, which was on my first Soberversary, um, I felt like it was a cathartic experience, drawing a line under my drinking, and it was very powerful for me. And uh, I really recommend that people do this. So let's hear yours, Clive, because yours is stunning.
1: Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at at Tribesober.com. That's janet, J-A-N-E-T, at tribesober.com, and we'll send you an invitation.
0: Thank you, yes. And, and so I wrote it just having turned seven months old in my sobriety. Um, and it, it, you had asked me to share at the Tribe Sober um, Zoom meeting. And I kind of felt it was appropriate to share. And also to that morning, I wrote this goodbye to alcohol. and it was quite cathartic. And I didn't realize how powerful it would be. So I do recommend to people who are listening um, that it is something That's an incredibly powerful experience because you do remember what alcohol robbed you of. So mine written on the 24th of April, 2021. And yeah, here we go. Dear Alcohol, it's been seven months since we've parted ways and sometimes I still find myself missing you. You've been in my life for many years, so saying goodbye was hard. Sometimes I think the hardest thing I've done in my life. I'd come to rely on you so much. You helped me to speak in front of people. You made me feel brave and confident. You gave me the courage to speak to strangers and dance like no one was watching. You helped me escape those lonely nights and disappear into a haze of forgetfulness and peace. At times you made me feel like the real me, the person I could be if I wasn't so in my head and worried what people were thinking. You made me fun. You made me laugh. You made me stop feeling. Because feeling is hard. You know how rough things got, especially in the last few years. I tried to say goodbye to you before, but like a lover, I can't escape. You came back into my life and made me forget the pain I was so desperate to ignore. Sometimes all I remember is what you gave me. I forget what you took away. And now I have to be honest about what you did to me. I'm not a victim to you, but I chose to let you in. And I chose to let you take control. And I chose to let you claim me. But I have chosen to take my power back because I never realized how powerless you really made me, how fleeting your escape was. And like an abusive lover, you would hurt me and leave me craving you for more. I used you and you let me. Almost two years ago, I gulped you down and took handfuls of pulls with you to try to finally escape. I chose you as my last taste, as my final escape. You, you were my confidence to try to control my final act, to bow out and leave what I didn't want to face. But it was meant to be. I tried to walk away holding your hand, but by some miracle I stood up to face another day and once again chose to have you by my side. Somehow I believed you made me feel more alive when I felt dead inside. I relied on you. I thought I loved you. I boasted how you were my longest relationship. You've been my life since I was a child and I've always struggled to go a week and sometimes a few hours without you. I wrote about you, encouraged people to taste you and held events where you were the hero. I let you be the hero instead of realizing I to man up and choose to be my own hero. And I forgive you and I forgive myself because walking away from you has made me feel like the strongest man in the world. God knows I'd struggle to walk away. I'd go a few days, but you were like a child sobbing for my attention, and I'd give in and let you envelop me in your escape. I'd try my best to ignore you, but you were always there. Even now you still are, as I count every day since I've parted ways. But those days are getting easier, and I'm seeing more and more of me and learning to love that me and realizing that you were wrong for me. You made me feel alive momentarily, but left me crumbling the next day, sick to my stomach with regret that I'd let you in the door, physically sick because I couldn't get enough of you. I now choose to remember those moments, not the escape, not the fun, but the fear I woke up with, with you lingering on my breath and in my head, with the regret I felt and the weakness and shame I woke up to, knowing that you had won once again. I choose to remember how you tried to control me, How you lied to me and told me I was okay and left me feeling worthless the next day. How I felt embarrassed about the way I acted when you were around, the things I said, the stumbling, the falling, and the not remembering. I choose to remember the days and nights you made me sick to my stomach, lying on the bathroom floor in my own vomit. I choose to remember the hitting and not the holding. I endured your abuse, not because of you, but because of me. I let you abuse me. I was lost without you and let you take control. You weren't my strength. I was just too ashamed to see that I felt weak. I admit that. I take responsibility for it. I choose to see my foolishness and celebrate the strength I've shown to finally walk away. Because walking away from you is strength. I see you every day in the stores, on the screen, in my Instagram feed. I think about you every day as I log another day in triumph of the day I put you behind me. You were on almost every page in the last chapters of my life, and you still will be in the future. But the story will be different. I will no longer remember what you made me feel like I could be. I will remember how walking away from you made me choose to be the person I want to be, to stand in my own strength and power, celebrate my flaws, sit with the pain of my past, and remain determined to be the man I choose to be rather than the man I let you make me believe I could be. I thought you made me strong. I make me strong. And although you're still very much a part of my life, you're now on the pages of my strength, of me claiming Clive back. You're on the pages where leaving you behind reminds me daily of what I can really do, just how strong I can be. You are significant, and you you not being a part of my life is even more significant. So goodbye and thank you for the lessons. I have no regrets, only a choice to walk in strength from here on. I choose a Clive of clarity, a Clive that sits with his feelings, a Clive that works hard not to escape, a Clive that no longer wants to run away. You helped me run away. I now choose to walk, step by step, as scary as that is, with focus and a clear mind. I choose to be in control. I will no longer hand over control. I choose to walk in power and saying goodbye will continue to remind me just how strong I am because I am because of me, because of a life that's lived with a mind that wakes up fresh, that faces its demons, that chooses to live. I choose to live. So I've stopped choosing you. Goodbye, old pal.
2: Wow, Clive, that is such a stunning goodbye letter. It's straight from the heart. I remember you reading it out at the Zoom cafe and I don't think there was a dry eye in the house or on the screen, should I say. There were so many insights in that conversation, but let's highlight a few. Clive's father offered him a drink of alcohol at quite an early age. It was all an effort to make it less exciting, but looking back, Clive feels that this was probably a bit naive, and if he was a parent, he'd probably share with his kids that he had a problem with alcohol himself, and that it was a substance that should be treated with caution. I think educating our kids about alcohol is so tricky, but one thing is for sure, it's easier to do this if we don't drink. It's no good telling them one thing and then modelling another by opening our nightly bottle of wine. Like many of us, Clive felt invincible when he was younger, and the fact that he became dependent on alcohol really took him by surprise. Alcohol dependency tends to sneak up on us over the years, and it's only when we try to cut down or give up that we realise we have a problem. That's why regular breaks are so important. If you want to try 66 alcohol-free days with online, community and audio support, then just go to tribesober.com and click on Sober Spring Challenge. I could really identify with Clive when he said he went to AA and he saw everyone chain-smoking and talking about their rock bottoms and he just didn't feel that he fitted in. He just didn't feel like an alcoholic because he wasn't drinking in the morning. He wasn't crashing cars, losing jobs and families, etc. The thing is, we don't have to wait until we hit rock bottom before we make a change. If we worry about our drinking, if it's on our mind, or even if we drink more than the low risk limits, then we should make some changes. At the very least, take a break just to test your dependency. Like most of us, Clive tried moderation. And we agreed that our drinking neural pathway will always be there. So once you've crossed a line with your drinking, moderation is no longer an option. The best thing to do is accept that you can't moderate and then concentrate on creating an alcohol-free life that you love. Clive talked about being triggered by a sunny day and the thought of drinking rosé. He's got a very sensible approach to triggers though. He just recognizes them, gets a bit curious about them and lets them pass without acting on them. A nice analogy there is to think of them like a cloud in the sky. Oh, there's a trigger. Let me watch it pass. Another way of dealing with those triggers is to create another ritual to replace it. For example, if Clive started enjoying a glass of alcohol-free bubbly every time he sat drinking in the sunshine, then his subconscious would gradually create a new and less harmful trigger. Clive's Madonna story is one of my favourites. I think it's the way he tells it. But it's a classic example, isn't it, of how we expect alcohol to enhance our experiences. In Clive's case, he ended up almost blacking out, missing most of the concert that he'd been looking forward to for months. He's made the joyful discovery that Clive doesn't need alcohol to be Clive. He can still be the life and soul of the party when stone cold sober. And 11 months into his sobriety, Clive feels that he's regained control of his life and reduced his anxiety. He feels strong and he's proud to be alcohol free. Clive ended our interview by reading his goodbye to alcohol letter. He found that writing this letter was a powerful and cathartic experience. His letter is very moving. And if you'd like to read it, just go to tribesober.com and hit the inspiration tab. And if you feel ready to write your goodbye to alcohol letter, then just send it to janet at tribesober.com and we'll be delighted to publish it. If you heard my interview last week with neuroscientist Stacy, you would have heard how she loves our goodbye to alcohol letters, and she suggests that people should not only write them, but keep rereading them regularly, just to keep themselves on track and remind them of just how bad the drinking got. If you want to know more about Clive, then you can follow him on Instagram at Late Night Clive. His website is ReadyPeopleCoza, and he's a training consultant and business coach. Here in South Africa, we're gearing up for our annual Sober Spring Challenge, the fourth year we've done this. It starts in September, but even if it's not spring where you are, you can still sign up for the challenge, which comprises of support for 66 alcohol-free days. Just go to tribesober.com and click on Sober Spring Challenge. And we've also got a membership bonus on offer this month. Just sign up as a subscription member and we'll include a complimentary Sober Spring Challenge with your membership. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us and share the podcast. See you next week.
1: Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.